any upstate New Yorker could tell you from experience, just because spring is nigh does not mean winter is done with us. Two of the biggest snowstorms on record for the region, one in 93 and the other in 1888, happened in mid-March. Well, Mother Nature got the best of us again this week, though it was far from the storms of the previous two centuries. Hope everyone's able to dig out okay. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. This is the most significant storm that we've seen upstate during what has been a pretty unremarkable winter. We'll hear updates in a 20-year-old unsolved murder from the Hudson Valley. And this is one of Orange County's most high-profile unsolved murder cases. And we'll get Times Union film writer C.J. Lias's take on this year's Academy Awards. I don't know that that was an Oscar-worthy or Oscar-nomination-worthy performance. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we're back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines. Let's start with the story that affected each and every one of us this week who are living in the capital region. That monster of a nor'easter that rolled through on Tuesday. Um, There was lots of snow. Lots of wind, power outages, that's just to say the least. So what are we looking at in terms of the fallout from this March storm? Well, snow (laughs) still here and is is really crusty as we are talking on Thursday morning. I took my dog to Albany Municipal Golf Course today and it is uh, it's crunchy and icy, but it is supposed to get warm. The sun is out today. And no doubt we're in for some uh, sketchy sidewalk days, but warm weather is ahead and also rain is ahead as we come into what's kind of a classic March cycle of dump and melt, basically. But a very pretty storm in the sense that, you know, first it was rain and then it became very adhesive, heavy snow, super slushy on Tuesday, I can tell you as a shoveler. And also one that did significant damage in many regions. Tens of thousands of people were without power. There were trees down, which of course is what leads to the loss of power. All in all, probably I guess this is the most significant storm that we've seen upstate during what has been a pretty unremarkable winter, except in the sense that uh, it was uh, remarkably mild. Now, it's interesting because looking back in history, some of the biggest snowstorms that we have faced in our region over the centuries have have taken place in mid-March, right around the same time. So uh, that's an interesting little factoid that I stumbled on this week. Um, And anyway, everybody watch your step outside until everything, everything melts. Let's move on to one of the top stories this week. 
Um, we're talking on Thursday right now, as you said. And yesterday, which was Wednesday, I saw you sprint through the newsroom to announce this next headline when it first happened. That is that the Albany Roman Catholic Diocese, which is facing hundreds of abuse claims at the moment, has declared bankruptcy. So give us the details. Yes, I'm 55. I don't sprint. I stride with purpose, Jasmine. You're really fat. Uh, <laughs> I was. It was it was big news, not exactly unexpected news. Brendan Lyons, who has been our uh, primary point reporter covering the diocese's response, the ongoing wrestling with the hundreds of people who filed civil complaints under the uh, state's Child Victims Act against the diocese, various individuals and various churches and schools and what have you. Those negotiations have, in recent months, uh, reached something of a of a standstill, with plaintiffs' attorneys saying that the diocese had not been offering up a serious, what's known as a, a global mediation or settlement package that could address all or at least most of of these civil complaints. The diocese had spoken before about the the prospect of it declaring bankruptcy as four of the eight New York dioceses had done previously since the Child Victims Act rained what I believe can appropriately be described as uh, hell upon these uh, these Catholic organizations, as well as others. You know, you've had scouting groups, uh, schools, as well as individuals who have been the defendants in civil cases unleashed by the Child Victims Act. So yes, on Wednesday, the um, the announcement, the rollout of the news from Bishop Edward Scharfenberger that the diocese was going to enter into Chapter 11 reorganization. What this means is uh, basically a hitting of the pause button on many of these civil claims, not only as a result of the CVA, but also the the related matter of pensioners who used to work for the now shuttered St. Clair's Hospital in Schenectady, which was essentially run by the diocese through basically a separate entity. Its pension fund, its retirement plans collapsed. Some were given uh, a percentage of what was supposed to be their retirement. Others saw it wiped out. This is also now the subject of a civil action that was brought by the state attorney general's office. And as you can imagine, plaintiff's attorneys... Uh, representing the abuse victims, as well as those who had taken the side of the St. Clair's pensioners, responded to this bankruptcy with fury. Jim Tedisco, a state senator who has advocated for uh, the St. Clair's pensioners, said uh, what the diocese announced today is absolutely shameful. They can run from their despicable actions and financial maneuverings, but they can't hide from the Lord, capital L, uh, or the court of public opinion about what they did to all their victims, including the 1,100-plus St. Clair's Hospital pensioners who were robbed of their retirement savings. Now, that is a Republican talking about a Catholic diocese. So that can give you the sense of the level of emotion and anger. Indeed, and there is a lot to this story. So head over to timesunion.com to read more about it. Uh, Moving from one huge story for us to another, which has been a huge story for us since 2018, the Times Union editorial board this week wrote a piece urging the FBI 
to be forthcoming or more forthcoming with information about Shahed Hussein, who was the owner of the limo company that put the doomed faulty limo on the road in October of 2018 that killed 20 people. Tell us more about that editorial. Yeah, that emerged from the news last week that came up in a congressional hearing where uh, Representative Elise Stefanik noted that she had received a letter from the FBI uh, and she was addressing FBI Director Christopher Wray at this hearing and said that uh, she had received notification that the Bureau had completed its internal review of uh, its handling of Shahed Hussein, the still absent owner of Prestige Limousine, who, of course, worked for uh, pretty much a decade as an undercover informant on counterterrorism investigations. Now, the Times Union has been asking, basically since the, the Schoharie limo crash occurred, for a greater sense of the Bureau's interaction with Shahed Hussein. And uh, our reporter, Larry Rulison, who I think it's fair to say has been the leading reporter on this story nationally and even internationally, has been stonewalled at every turn with the Bureau failing uh, repeatedly to even acknowledge that Shahed Hussein was an informant. This despite the fact that Hussein named without a bag over his head, testified numerous times in open court in these counterterrorism stings that the Bureau put him into. Now, uh, we have no idea whether or not the Bureau ever vouched for Hussein, who was involved in several, I believe the adjective is shady business dealings, real estate uh, transactions that there are many, many questions about. But it's time for the Bureau to, to be straightforward, as the editorial board put it. What we know is that uh, members of Congress, including uh, Representative Stefanik, who is, I would say, uh, a representative that our editorial board has had numerous disagreements with down through the years, especially in recent years, as she has gone full MAGA, but she and others will get a briefing from the FBI. She, correctly, has pushed for the families of the dead to also be briefed by the FBI. The editorial board also called for the FBI to release its report, whatever its internal review has coughed up, and that all re uh, redactions to that report should be for genuine security reasons and not just to protect the Bureau from potential embarrassment. That briefing is supposed to happen this month. We will see whether or not the Bureau actually um, takes the editorial board's advice. Well, we will hopefully talk about this on an upcoming episode of The Eagle in the next month or so um, as we have updates. All right. The last story I want to talk about, the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament, or the big dance, as I've heard it called, is returning to the MVP arena in downtown Albany. It's going to play host to round one and two games. Huge deal. Tell us all about it. Yeah, this is the first time in 20 years that Albany has hosted first round March Madness games. They are going to be played Friday. That's definitely the busy day. There's nothing quite like the start of March Madness. You know, you you cannot have enough TV screens in your house, <laughs> picture in picture at least. Or enough brackets that you filled out. Uh, yes, fill your brackets out definitely before, uh, before play starts. But you know, these are first round games, which can tend to be top seeds versus very high seeds. We have a couple of very 
well, I would not exactly call them tight competitions, but they should be great games. And remember, it's March Madness. So there, there's going to be an upset. Indiana, which is a, a four seed, will be there as well. Uh, UConn, another four seed. They are definitely <laughs> going to be playing on Friday. And then we will have to see who ends up playing on Sunday as well. Big news in sports, really big news for downtown Albany businesses and even businesses outside of the downtown. We're talking about tens of thousands of folks who are going to be pouring in, filling up hotels, uh, clamoring in restaurants and bars to get their order so they can get to the games. And uh, we should note that all of this action this weekend, uh, the Times Union will be providing out-of-towners with good advice on where they can eat, where they can hang out, what they can do on Saturday. All of this is taking part as a number of downtown businesses, including hotels and restaurants, are reeling from the surprise cancellation of the Bruce Springsteen show, which was going to take place on Tuesday and was sidelined not by the weather, although it would have been a pretty sloppy night to uh, to get to the MVP arena. Well, that, that wouldn't have stopped hardcore Bruce Springsteen fans. No, no. And speaking as a somewhat uh, begrudging ticket holder, I, I was prepared to make the trip, but, um, but rather by uh, illness on the tour. Bruce is back on the road and uh, will apparently be announcing replacement dates for the three shows that were postponed over the course of the last week. All right, we'll be looking forward to that. And you can head over to timesunion.com to see our guide of what to do in downtown Albany this weekend. It's pretty robust. Check it out. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Now, our next topic is one that may be distressing to some listeners. We are going to get an update on a 20-year-old unsolved murder. It's one of the Hudson Valley's most talked about cases. And this week, there was an update. So please listen on with care. And I promise we'll get back to some lighter fare afterward. Twenty-year-old Megan McDonald was found dead in the Orange County town of Wallkill on March 15, 2003. She appeared to have been bludgeoned to death. No suspects have ever been named. But in the last few years, the case has heated up. Law enforcement says they're close to naming a suspect. This week, the FBI and the New York City Detectives Endowment announced a $20,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest for McDonald's murder. I checked in with Times Union reporter Lana Bellamy this week for the details. Um, just give us the basics about, you know, what happened. So at the time of her death, Megan, like you said, she was 20 years old. She was working in uh, the Gallery Mall, which is right here in the town of Wauquill. She lived in the town of Wauquill, which is sort of a bedroom community for the city of Middletown. And she was a student at Orange County Community College, which now is more commonly referred to as SUNY Orange. So they're basically saying that she was beaten to death, but they haven't actually said who did it or the circumstances or what the motive was or why. The FBI on 
the 19th anniversary of it, which uh, would have been closer to Megan's 40th birthday if she was still alive, mm-hmm. uh, they conducted some fresh interviews with associates of someone that they have uh, as a prime suspect. And they described that suspect as being, and this is according to how it was summed up in the Times World Record, which is the local paper here, mm-hmm. a classic narcissist who craves control and attention a man who suffered a blow to his psyche when Megan rejected him and lashed out with blows of his own, bludgeoning the 100-pound woman from behind as she sat in her car. Mm. So they tracked down people who were associated with this person at the time of Megan's death. They said those interviews helped create some fresh leads and uh, fill in at least one key part of the timeline concerning where the suspect was when Megan was killed. Mm, but they haven't named a suspect. No, they haven't. Now, what's the update this week? It's a it's a grim marker, and, and this is one of Orange County's most high-profile unsolved murder cases. Law enforcement is putting up a $20,000 reward for information that could lead to an arrest being offered by um, the New York City Detectives Endowment Association and the FBI. So you said that this was one of the regions, the Orange County's kind of biggest, most intriguing. And you said it's not a cold case because it's obviously still being actively investigated. But, you know, for lack of a better term, a case that had gone somewhat cold. What What is your sense of that? Like people are really still interested in it? Oh, definitely. And I think that the day, if it ever comes, that police announce an arrest especially if there's ever a conviction for who killed Megan, I think that will be huge news for our area. You hear about Megan McDonald's case all the time. I only got here five years ago, and it was one of the first things I heard about. There's also a a very big, prominent electronic billboard on 17 that has her picture, like the one we have with our story, and information for how to submit tips and the reward that's being offered. You mentioned earlier that there is a Justice for Megan McDonald website. What is that about? It keeps track of news stories uh, with information about like what has happened to Megan and where the investigation is. It has this loose timeline of events from March 13th when Megan ended her shift at a cafe in the Galleria uh, through when her body was found on March 15th. Just kind of give me the highlights of the timeline. And it, it's interesting because since there isn't a lot, there was what police said in a NBC Dateline story. They said this party at uh, a place called Greenway Terrace, which I believe are some uh, like row house apartments. That seems to be a very key part of what happened to her because they believe that her killer was at this party. On March 13th, um, she gets off work around three. She goes and withdraws some cash. And then she drives by this party around seven o'clock. Some of her friends are at this party and they invite her inside, but she declines and says that she's going to go and hang out with some other friends in Middletown, which is really close by. And so she goes to Middletown and she stays there till about 12 a.m. midnight and So she needs to leave because she's going to work early in the morning. Then 15 minutes later, the timeline says that she shows back up to this party at Greenway Terrace, but they don't know why. 
and she doesn't go inside and then she drives away and it looks like she's only there for a couple of minutes maybe 15 minutes and then at 12 30 a witness saw megan driving into the parking lot of kensington manor it's a long-time apartment complex in the town of Walk Hill, off Freezer Road. And the witness said that they saw a dark hatchback following her around in laps around the complex's parking lot playing loud music. And that was the last time that anyone saw her. So at 8 o'clock, technically later that morning, March 14th, a resident at the complex saw that her car was parked oddly in the back of the parking lot. And then it's not till more than 24 hours the ne- later, the next day on March 15th, a man discovered her body in a field off of Bowser Road in the town of Walk Hill at one o'clock. It's less than five miles from Kensington Manor. It's about a 10 minute drive. Not exactly clear how her body got there or if that was where she was killed. There's just a lot of holes there. Yeah. Not a lot of details yet. <laughs> No, and I think they're keeping those details that some of the details that they do know, uh, like close to the vest, because police have indicated to the Times World Record recently that they feel that they're close to shoring up a case against the suspect. And an investigator has said, we're going to wait until it's the best case that we can possibly have. And that an issue with colder cases is that the more time that passes, you can encounter some problems people's memories may fade or key people in the case may die but Mm -hmm. they've actually said they're not worried about that with this case and in fact time may have actually helped people who knew what happened open up that's a refreshing note right there because usually as you said most people in in the case of julie grainwalker which is the subject of a sister podcast of ours it was only 15 years, but people have died, and the concern is that memories have faded and people have moved on. So to hear that a 20-year-old cold case, or sorry, not cold case, <laughs> is, uh, is likely, you know, people are confident that it's going to be solved is, is kind of refreshing. When and if it happens, many people will be interested in it. Absolutely, and I will definitely be having you back on the podcast to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. If you have information on the Megan McDonald case, the state police want to hear from you. You can call the Troop F Major Crimes Unit at 845-344-5370, or you can email crimetip at troopers.ny.gov. After the break, the 95th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony last weekend was pretty buzzworthy. We'll get Times Union film writer C.J. Lias's hot takes on who took home the golden statuette and who got the dreaded snub. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. 
Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Hollywood's top honors were bestowed this weekend at the 95th Academy Awards ceremony in Los Angeles. While Times Union film writer C.J. Lias was 3,000-some-odd miles away in the frozen tundra that is currently upstate New York, he still got a few hot takes on the much-talked-about results. I connected with him after the show to get his thoughts. Oscars 2023. Want your takes on them? There were, there was, as always, some controversy. There was some glorious triumph. You know, I admit I did not watch the Oscars broadcast. I kind of surfed through Twitter and Facebook and got all the highlights that way. So I'm relying on you to fill in all, all of the gaps in my knowledge of it. I guess let's start with Best Picture. What is your take on Best Picture? It seemed preordained. Sort of. We're talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes. As the award season progressed, it just seemed to be the odds-on favorite. It picked up the most nominations and then ultimately ended up winning the most Oscars, seven Oscars. Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. It's the first movie to ever get three acting wins, and also win Best Picture. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I that was actually the only movie of the Oscar nominees in that category that I actually saw, and I definitely enjoyed it. I mean, do you think the film, from your perspective as a critic, uh, lived up to the hype? Yes, because it was so audacious and ambitious, and even if you you didn't like it or you didn't understand it because it was very complicated, <laughs> the plot... It's still, you couldn't deny it was so much more inventive and creative than most anything else out there. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I think, you know, breaking it down to its simplest form, it was really a kind of a mother-daughter story, which resonates with me. (laughs) The other thing that I find funny about the film is that uh, all the merch that has kind of sprung up around it, like you (laughs) you can buy hot dog fingers and a raccoonie hat. Yes. But uh, if you haven't heard of that, uh, you know, go see the movie and you'll know what I'm talking about. All right. Let's go through as, you know, concisely as we can, because we could probably talk for three hours about all of this. But let's go through the acting awards. Okay, so we we stick with everything everywhere all at once. Michelle Yao, after a 40 year career in movies, gets her first nomination and her first win. You know, much was talked about when she got nominated that she's the first Asian identifying actress to be up in this category. But what's, I think, even more interesting and sadder is she is actually only the second woman of color to win Best Actress. The first being Halle Berry, who they symbolically had come out with Jessica Chastain last year as Best Actress winner to give out the award to Michelle Yao, mostly, I think, because 
Will Smith could not return to give That's out. That's a whole different story right there. Exactly. It was a really smart move to have Halle Berry give out the award to Michelle Yao as the only two women of color to win this award. Wow. What about the other acting awards? Ki Hui Kwan won Best Sporting Actor, in that, and he's actually the only second Asian actor to win that category after uh, Hang S. Noor from uh, Killing Fields years ago. Ki Hui Kwan also hadn't been acting or at least acting on a big stage for like two decades, right? Yes, he had given it up because he just wasn't getting roles after, you know, his childhood uh, acting. Maybe like three years ago, he decided to go back to it and good decision. Yes, that definitely panned out well for him. <laughs> and, that, you know, as Jimmy Kimmel pointed out, now you have between him and Best Actor winner this year, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, you have two stars of Encino Man. Or now Oscar winners, so yeah. Polly Shore had some fun with that on Twitter, right? Yes, he did. He took it. He took it in good, uh, good humor. <laughs> but let's let's talk about Brendan Fraser then and his win. It seemed like Brendan Fraser from the minute that movie came out, the minute it debuted at the film festivals, everyone just wanted to give him this award. I'm not saying he's had the biggest struggle of anyone. You know, the, maybe the comeback story they have for him is a little overblown because I mean he has been working. But he did have some health issues. He had his controversy with uh, the Golden Globes and a, a sexual uh, assault charge against the president of the Golden Globes. Then he got divorced, and, and I think family members died. I mean, there was a lot that happened at once, and he kind of fell off the radar, and this movie brought him back. And so that, that's been the, the through line and the story throughout all of this time. But I don't think anyone could deny his performance either. I didn't see the movie. And, and you know, there was the controversy over... As always, with someone using a you know prosthetics and and you know quote unquote fat suit to right. to play a, you know an overweight person. The last acting category, I think, is the one that the people are kind of most not perturbed because that's not the right word, but there's the most buzz around this one in terms of yes. it being slightly controversial. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's win in the best supporting actress category. Tell yes. me, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I questioned her nomination when it first came out. I, I think she's perfectly good in it. I, I like Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't know that that was an Oscar-worthy or Oscar-nomination-worthy performance. I guess if it had happened in some other year where someone like Angela Bassett wasn't up for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, personally, when I saw Black Panther, the minute she gave her first angry, grief-stricken monologue in that movie, I, I think I turned to the person I was with and said, oh, can we just give her the Oscar now? Yeah. I, I thought she was powerful. I mean, she's the first person to have an acting nomination for a Marvel movie. Much was made of that. Um, but she's phenomenal. And it's it's for a Marvel movie and an action movie, it, it's it's a meditation on grief and loss. And it's but still a great action movie. It's it's much more than people think it is, and her performance was great. So, What about Stephanie Hsu, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's co-star in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? A lot of people were saying that it should have been between Angela Bassett and her for the award. I think that's a better choice myself, true. Actually, I would I would have chosen Carrie Condon over Jamie Lee Curtis from The Banshees of Inisherin. So yeah, so that rounded out a a pretty exciting roster of acting awards and best film. One of the other things that I thought was controversial about this year's Oscars, and it is to some extent every year, but 
I've seen a lot of people talking about it on social media is is the in memoriam segment and how it left out a lot of people who died this year who, you know, were pretty, pretty known entities in the film world. What was your take on this year's in memoriam and the people who got, quote unquote, snubbed from it? I consider myself an empathetic and sympathetic person. I do. And it's going to make me sound terrible. But every year I dread this. I dread that someone or some ones are going to complain that X or Y certain people didn't get included in a two or three minute memoriam piece on a show that everyone complains is too long to begin with. (laughs) Having said that, I know one of the biggest ones people are upset about is Paul Sorvino. Yeah. And other shows that did include him had a very easy way in to do this. Both he and Ray Liotta died this year, two of the stars of Goodfellas, and they had many scenes together. So (laughs) other shows have shown clips with the two of them together and honor them. They had Ray Liotta in this. It would have been very easy to include Paul Servino. Oh, absolutely. I could could even see it in my head where you have like the kind of the double chirons with the names popping up. Uh, let's talk about some of the snubs. What what were some of the, the shutouts and the snubs this year that are worth talking about? Big ones, because uh, there were several movies with multiple nominations that came home empty or went home empty. The Fablemans, Tar, Elvis, The Banshees of Minasheran. Yes, I heard buzz about all of those films. Arguably, every one of them could have, possibly should have, won at least one category. Mm-hmm. Another milestone, but it's kind of uh, positive and negative at the same time, Ruth Carter won Best Costume Design for Black Panther Kind of Forever, mm-hmm. which she had also won the same award for the original Black Panther. She achieved a milestone here, but the milestone is she is the first black woman to ever win two Oscars. Wow. I said it's a great achievement for her, but it's it's another one of those when something happens, whether it's Michelle Yeoh, whether it's Halle Berry, whether it's Ruth Carter, it's like, okay, it's great. Why didn't it happen 30, 40 years ago? Why doesn't it happen consistently? Right, right. exactly. What about James Hong? James Hong, I thought, deserved an Oscar for his performance, or at least a nomination, right? That guy was amazing. He's in his 90s, and his presence on screen during that movie, like that. Wow, I was blown away by him as well. And and the fact that he's just so with it and witty and spry and, and still at this age. I mean, I've I've seen him on innumerable TV shows and movies throughout my life. So, I mean, he's a very familiar presence to me. He's going to be one of those uh, honorary Governor's Awards one of these years coming soon. Yeah, I hope so. He deserves it. Well, until next year or until the next time a... Uh, films cause any sort of news uh, around here we will catch up with you uh soon all right sounds good all right that's it for this week i'm jessica marshall we'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the times union in the meantime check us out on facebook twitter youtube and instagram or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features The Eagle is a production of The Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from The Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Lana Bellamy, and CJ Lias for their contributions to this episode.